Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Welcome, everybody, and good evening, and thank you for joining me here live uh, on Golf Talk Live. Uh, I've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, Always excited to be on air and uh, we're in the 2020 season, and uh, this is actually season number eight for the program, so I'm really excited about that as well. And uh, last week, of course, we started out with the first Coach's Corner panel of the season, and tonight, of course, we're going to have uh, a second group of guys that are going to be joining me here in just a minute, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about each of them. And then a little bit later on, I'm really excited to have uh, this gentleman come back on the show. He was a guest several years ago. Uh, we talked about uh, a book that he had authored called Uneven Lies, and, of course, I'm talking about author and retired golf writer uh, Pete McDaniels. He'll be joining me on the second half of the show, so I'm really excited about that. Um, but first, let me just uh, remind everybody that Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. iGolf Sports Network, or iGolfSports.com for short, is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top-quality programming designed specifically to attract the golfing enthusiast. Uh, stay tuned for iGolf's official launch. I'll be giving you... Uh, the details uh, in the weeks and months uh, ahead. It's going to be um, launched a little bit later officially uh, in the season, but I will keep you posted here uh, on air and on social media. So keep keep an eye out for that. But uh, uh, I'm very, very excited about a lot of things that we're going to be doing. Um, but anyways, let me uh, tell you a little bit about uh, the guys tonight. I know most of you that tune in regularly are very familiar with uh, all of these guys, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them anyways. Uh, just to, to, for the, any new listeners that might be tuning in tonight. Uh, first up on the panel is Pete Buchanan. He is the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf. Uh, Plain Simple Golf, of course, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, Pete's been teaching for well over 30 years now and has been a, an integral part in uh, helping all of you out there uh, become better players. Uh, also on the panel, uh, a good friend as well, is John Hughes. He's a PJ Master Professional uh, president of the North Florida PJ section and the 2013 PJ of America uh, Horton Smith Award recipient. And he's also one of the top 25 instructors with Golf Tips magazine. Uh, also rounding out the panel is uh, Brian Dobby. He's a PJ teacher professional at, uh, now at Trump National in Bedminster, uh, New Jersey. Uh, formerly, he was the PJ uh, professional at the Montclair Golf Club in New Jersey, uh, where he spent over 18 years. Uh, he's won five New Jersey section awards. Uh, the latest was the 2019 Player Development Award, and uh, he's a nominee for the National Player Development Award as well this year. And uh, formerly, he was the uh, 2012 Teacher of the Year and ranked in the latest Golf Digest Top uh, Teachers in New Jersey. So, guys, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner, and, and thanks for on the, being on the show. Thanks, Ted. Good to thanks, be here. Ted. Thank you, Ted. It's great to be back. All right. Well, a happy new year, everybody. I know this is the first time that uh, you've all been on the show this season and uh, welcome back to Coach's Corner. And we're going to have a great show tonight. So um, we're going to talk about a, a, a bunch of different things, some, some tips that uh, we're going to share with a lot of the listeners here. And I'm going to start uh, in order 
and I think I'm just going to simplify it, keep the order that I uh, introduced you guys tonight um, with a question just to sort of keep everything straight. And uh, one of the things that, so Pete, I'm going to start with you. Um, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about is uh, the long game, uh, if you will. And, and that could be anything from the driver to long irons to even some of your uh, longer hybrids. And one of the areas that a lot of people, I guess, don't really understand, you know, we always hear about good shoulder turns and, you know, keeping it uh, sort of a, a long and, and wide uh, swing arc, if you will. Um, but an area that we don't hear a lot about is the knees, the role that they play. Can you maybe touch a little bit about that and how the knees uh, sort of interact and help kind of keep everything uh, together? Well, you know, looking at, at the, the longer clubs themselves, you know, you're going to have to have a swing that's a little bit more rounded because of the length of them for them to perform the best. And so, you know, the knees are going to be a stable factor in what's going on with helping you to maintain the posture, helping you to turn uh, so you can stay balanced. Um, you know, there has to be some uh, enough flex in there so you can have the weight balanced on your feet so you're not too much towards your heels or too much towards your toes. And, you know, they they provide some, you know, flexibility throughout the motion of the swing and really depending on, you know, what type of swing you have. I mean, some will, will turn the shoulders a little bit more, some will tip the shoulders a little bit more. So, you know, the lower half is going to react to the upper half movements. So, you know, the knees are going to play a significant role in being able to help maintain some of the angles to allow you to get back to the ball sufficiently to allow the body to stay stable um, and to, to keep you balanced. And so, you know, they're going to play a significant role in there. And I think with, with the longer clubs, it's really important that you have, you know, more stability. Uh, you've got straighter club faces, so you need a little bit more stability to control the ball a little bit better. You can get away with the short irons with the loft on it, you know, and not not be as as precise as, as some. I mean, obviously, you know, the contact still has to be pretty good. But I think, you know, from a from an overall posture standpoint, I, I think the knees and the angles that they set, you know, from the hips on down to the feet uh, are really important to keep you balanced, keep you stable, and allow you a more repetitive motion, especially with the longer clubs. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, and, you know, Pete, the other thing just to add real quickly is, especially for, for some of our taller players, uh, again, you know, with your, your longer clubs, uh, obviously you're, you're creating a much wider and, and longer uh, backswing. Um, the knees really help stabilize you. One of the, the issues, particularly, again, for all players, obviously, but particularly for long players like me that are tall and long in the legs, is that knees kind of keep you uh, stable and, and help you um, really from, from swaying uh, a lot um, by having good um, you know, control of, of your knees and the positions that they're in. And a lot of people, unfortunately, they get too, very loose in their knees and their legs and uh, creates a lot of swaying. So uh, a great answer there, uh, Pete. Um, John, I'm going to move on to you. And, and this, uh, again, uh, really can apply to any part of the game, but we'll, we'll talk primarily here in the long game. Um, the wind, of course, uh, can be your friend uh, you know, especially when you're playing long game, if you're off the tee, um, you know, especially if you've got the wind coming from behind you, uh, it gives you an opportunity, and, and especially in longer par fives or, or even par fours, um, where you want to get some extra distance. Um, but there are a lot of things that, that people need to guard against when playing in the wind. Um, maybe talk a little bit and touch a little bit about some of the, the, the do's and the don'ts when you're playing in, in a wind, uh, windy conditions. 
Thanks, Ted, and uh, appreciate being on, Pete. Uh, everybody here, uh, really appreciate being with you guys. Uh, from a wind standpoint of view, we deal with it in Central Florida all the time. The trade went off the Atlantic, the trade went off the Gulf. Always makes for not hazardous wind play, but sometimes it can, but it's always continuous wind. And a lot of people don't realize that even a wind, a downwind shot can be knocked down by wind based on gusts, based on it. It's just blowing too hard. Uh, the biggest thing people do, I see, is try to fight the wind. Uh, it's just something that's inevitably not available to you. No matter how hard you try to fight it, it's going to win. Nicholas had a saying, when it's breezy, he swung easy. And when he said that, it was before the uh, advent of flight scope and such. And what he really meant to say was when I'm in the breeze, swinging in the breeze, swinging with the breeze, it didn't matter to him. He was going to swing it a little bit easier because he knew that the trajectory came out a little bit lower. There was less initial spin on the ball. And for those two reasons, the ball seemed to, for lack of a better way of saying it, penetrate the wind in a, in a much different rifle effect than saying taking a full swat at it. We know that to be true today. And what I, I see a lot of amateurs do is, is try to really beat on it. You don't have to. The second thing I see people do is they – underestimate what the wind does. They're trying to feel it on the ground where they are, but they forget to realize that the ball is not going to be there when it's flying. It's going to be treetop or above. Uh, when the ball gets above the treetops, any side wind, that's going to tend to take a little bit off it. Uh, it doesn't matter which way the wind's going to blow. It's going to take a little bit off it. So what I'm always telling amateurs is don't don't throwing up grass doesn't re really mean a thing other than the direction. You need to know the velocity of the wind. Look for the treetops. Look for bush tops. That's where your ball is going to be. And understand direction and velocity. Can you play the wind? If you've got a predominant ball flight with the wind, sure, go ahead and try it. But if your ball flight's against the wind, all the wind's going to do is hold it up, and it's going to come up shorter. So you got to pay attention to direction. You also have to pay attention to velocity, and you don't have to you don't have to hit it hard. Take the take the extra club and swing it easy when it's breezy. It's it's some of the most sage advice ever given. Playing in the wind. Very good uh, advice indeed. And you know it reminds me a lot. <clears throat> pardon me. You know especially on par threes, you see this a lot. Uh, you know how many times we've all uh, stepped up on, on onto a par three. Um, and, you know, the tee box is maybe fairly protected by some trees, so you don't maybe always have that wind, but as you hit the ball airborne and you're getting closer to the green, you know, suddenly, you know, wind becomes uh, a play, and, and uh, you know, you think you might just need to hit your 8-iron to that green, and uh, a gust of wind comes up, and you end up being, you know, 10, 20, even 30 yards short, and you're wondering why, and more often than not, uh, you know, you've obviously selected the wrong club, uh, for the condition. So it's very important. I, I couldn't agree more, John, is, you know, look at the, the treetops and, and look a little bit higher up and see, even look at the clouds and see how the, the clouds are moving. And if they're moving fairly quickly, uh, obviously you're not hitting the ball quite that high, but it does give you an indication of, of what's happening uh, a little further up in the air. And, and uh, it's good, good advice to, uh, to have a, a better understanding of that. Um, Brian, I want to move to something a little bit different that uh, 
uh, some people might be familiar with if they've had some good instruction, but uh, there's those that may not understand this. So I'm going to kind of unpack a little bit for you, and then I want to get your thoughts on this. And so for this tip here, I want people to imagine hitting a second ball, and I'm not talking about actually physically hitting a second ball, um, but you know, a lot of players have difficulties uh, with impact, especially with their irons. They don't understand that you're, you're really, you're swinging sort of down and through, if you will, now, because you're trying to hit the ball uh, really first and uh, make good in- contact with it to get that ball airborne. And a lot of times they, they fall short, they don't get a proper uh, uh, transfer of weight and so forth. So a really good tip that a lot of uh, pros use and maybe even the guys in the panel use is to put a second ball in front of the one that they're about to hit. And I don't mean directly, but maybe uh, 15 to 20 inches in front of the ball. And the reason why they do that is to create a visualization with that second ball. And obviously you can't do that in tournament play, but it's something you can do on the practice tee. Um, and, and really what it's designed to do is to help you um, uh, sort of hit down and through the ball. Imagine like you're trying to hit that second ball. So it gives you that, that proper transfer and that uh, proper angle of attack. So talk a little bit about that. And you may have some other tips as well that are similar, Brian. Uh, but I think this is a good one here for giving people the, the proper visualization of, of making good crisp contact with their irons. Yeah, Ted, that's uh, that's a great um, thought there on the second ball there and impact. Um, Ted, first off, thanks for having me on the show again. And Pete and John, Pleasure. you know, I love coming on the show because I learned so much from listening to you guys. So thanks so much. Um, so, Ted, back to uh, impact, you know, um, most players, you know, higher handicapper players, you know, they shift their weight back to the right and they try to lift the ball. Okay, so, you know, they're moving their divot back to the right of the ball. Um, their angle of attack is going to be more ascending and stuff. So um, having that second ball in front of you, you know, going forward, gets that weight moving, gets the, the, the angle changing, getting a little bit more descent coming into the ball. Um, and as we know, you know, tour players, their divot is, you know, roughly four, four inches out in front of the ball. You know, that's a good divot. So that's a, that's a great drill. And um, something else that I do is I'll put a towel behind the ball about four, about four inches, five inches, depending on the player. And, and, you know, as they're swinging that, that long iron into the club or even a short iron, they don't want to hit that towel on the way down. And it gives great feedback. You know, if you do hit it, your divots to the right, you, you might be not shifting your weight forward. And then once you start getting that weight going and not hitting that towel or chasing that second ball, your ball flight's going to improve because you, you start to compress the ball. And, and that's what we need through the hitting zone, through impact, is, you know, hands leading the club head slightly and your weight moving to the left. And um, that's going to produce more of a, a better ball flight for anyone. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, there's a lot of great drills that, that will accomplish the same thing, but I, I really do like the, the, the second ball drill, if you will, because I think it gives people, um, you know, and you can certainly, uh, again, this is something you're going to do in the practice tee. You're not going to do this in tournament or in, in an actual round, but, um, you know, a lot of people might put a tee or something, uh, you know, a little bit ahead of the, of the actual uh, ball that they're hitting, uh, or as you suggest, you know, a towel, uh, a little bit behind and, and obviously you want to clear that towel and, uh, and, and really focus on uh, a sort of a downward uh, motion um, as you come into impact. Yeah. So uh, some, some great advice. And, and um, you know, I think it, it, it'll help people in the long run to have some of those visualizations because, you know, too often more, more than not, and a lot of people just get up there and they just sort of swing haphazard. And they don't really have a game plan 
on, on how to make good solid contact. Um, thank you for that, no, uh, Brian. It was great. Answer. Yeah. Um, Ted, Pete, I want to come back to you. Point. Yep. Sure. Go ahead, uh, Brian. I'm sorry. Ted, one more quick point on that. I just thought of, you know, m- most higher handicapped players get two ball bound and they're swinging at the ball instead of through the ball. And that two ball drill will get you swinging through it instead of at it. I think that's, that's a good mental picture too, of what you're trying to do with a club, not swinging at it's trying to swing through it right it's it's exactly right it's a golf swing and um you know people have to remember that so a great point thank you brian um pete i'm going to come back to you and and we're going to move into some short game strategies and and uh you know while the long game is is obviously predominantly more about power and distance um short game obviously we want to emphasize more on finesse and technique and and obviously accuracy and, and Pete, I know you're a, a big proponent of, of all parts of the game, but particularly the short game uh, and, and trying to get people to, to really uh, attack those greens. So maybe talk a little bit about how a, a person's strategy is going to change a little bit um, when they now are going to be focusing or, or dealing with more of the short game uh, part of it uh, as opposed to the long game. How does their strategy, if you will, sort of change a little bit? Well, you know, every different level of player, you know, the short game becomes – you know, of great, great importance. And, you know, the, the lower the handicap gets, the less the, the shots you get. I mean, if you miss the green, you know, and you're a scratch player, now you get two. If you're, you know, a little bit higher handicap, you might get two or three to, to maintain the level that you play at. But all in all, it's still very important. And I think one of the things I always try to get in the, in the outset with looking at the short game first is, is in putting is, is getting to learn how to roll the ball properly and I know that sounds funny, but we all as teachers know that, you know, rolling the ball efficiently has a lot to do with being able to be a better putter and, and have more control over the distance that your putts go. You know, you have to roll the ball properly to get it to, to behave properly on the greens and get more control over what it's going to do. But one of the other things that I really like to focus on is I like to get the players to understand loft versus roll with their clubs. How much air time mm-hmm. and ground time are your clubs going to have when you play around the greens. And if I'm going to take a nine from this position and fly it to this point, how far is it going to run from there? And as they get better at understanding law versus role, it gives them so much more confidence, number one, but two, it gives them, you know, an an understanding of, of being able to control the distance that those balls are going to go. And I think a lot of times when I start to do that, I'll have a player who, and you, you all have seen these, no matter where you get around the green, the lob wedge or sandwich comes out. It doesn't matter. But after I start to get them to understand a little bit more law versus roll, it's amazing how many times now there'll be a nine or an eight or a seven or a six, uh, because they start to figure out that they can control the ball a little bit easier with shorter sh- strokes and getting the ball on the green a little bit earlier and then letting the ball run from there. So, uh, you know, to me, I, I know the short game is totally important, but I think, getting them to understand how to control the ball a little bit better, uh, roll it properly, and then understand, you know, loft versus run and, and how to control those. I think it gives them a, a little bit more of an opportunity, a, a little bit more imagination around the greens, but ultimately in the end, more control because you have to get control over those short shots if you're going to get your scores down. Otherwise, you know, it's just it's going to continue to be a, a struggle. So that's kind of the way I like to go about it. Um, obviously, you have techniques of, you know, how to hit the shots and those types of things. But I like to get them to right. understand the tools that they're using and, and what they're for and how they can benefit them from, you know, air time and ground time. 
Uh, you're you're exactly right. Um, and, and and you know the, the thing is, Pete, that what we really want for people to do is really assess. I think that the number one thing is that you want them to assess the shot at hand and understand what type of shot they want to play. How much of it is going to be airtime? How much of it is going to be roll? Especially when they're getting close to the green, if it's going to be a chip or uh, a pitch, if you will. Um, you know, you want to to understand and assess the type of shot needed and then make an informed decision based on that. A lot of times we see people getting up there and, you know, they might be uh, just a few yards off the green and, and uh, you know, they think, well, the best shot is maybe to fly the ball all the way back to the hole. Um, and, you know, maybe the green is severely downsloped and, and uh, that may not be uh, necessarily the, the, uh, the best uh, option. Uh, it may be a, a simple bump and run depending on how far off they are. So, um, you know, you really have to assess it and that's part of, uh, obviously falls into course management and understanding how to play these different shots, but you're exactly right. I think the technique and, and, and making good contact uh, with all of your shots helps you to give you that confidence to, to make some good informed decisions. I want to be, John, before I go to you, I, I want to um, mention something that's uh, really not a tip per se um, for um, improving your, your hitting technique, but it's certainly something and I know uh, we, we all fall guilty of this as we get a little bit older, but um, uh, getting out and getting an, an eye exam uh, is very, very important, uh, especially early in the season if you haven't updated your, your eyes. And I'm going to tell you why here in just a minute because you'd be surprised. I'm going to give you a little bit of information here. Um, I can remember myself many, many years of falling into this category. I mean, I wear glasses now uh, for pretty much everything. But um, people don't realize, especially golfers don't realize that uh, – that they cannot perceive depth correctly, uh, which in turn will affect their ability to judge the distance to the hole. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the worst cases, the error rate can be about 25%. So as an example, if you uh, misjudge a 12 and a half foot distance as 10 feet, there's two and a half feet difference. And a lot of times people wonder why uh, their putts aren't reaching the hole. It's not always necessarily technique. It's because their visual depth perception is not accurate. So before you get out there, especially for those of you up in the Northeast, go and have your eyes examined and make, make sure uh, that your prescription is up to date if you need one or maybe you do need one and need to get one because uh, it's amazing how far off uh, your judgment on distance can be if your eyes are not 100%. So um, I think that's a good tip for people to do because you'd be surprised at how many people. I've had many students come up there and you know, I'll set them up uh, on the putting surface and they're nowhere near it. And I'm looking and I thought, you know, they've got a good technique and everything going. And it's just that, uh, you know, I'll, after asking them a couple of questions, um, I'll, I'll realize that they're not even close in their, in their depth um, uh, percentages. So, uh, and perception. So uh, get your eyes examined uh, before you get out there and start hitting the golf shots. And I think you'll find that that'll help a little bit in, in that area. Um, John, what I want to get you to talk about uh, continuing on with the, with the short game uh, is really perfecting that shot uh, or short off a tight lie. This is a, a something else that, uh, again, we find ourselves in um, maybe around the green or even out in the fairway. Uh, a lot of the courses that have a, a, a very tightly mowed fairway, uh, we get in a tight lie. And uh, that can be challenging, believe it or not. Even though it's a good lie for people, uh, it can be challenging. Talk about some of the things that really you need to keep in mind when you're dealing with a tight lie um, as far as ball position, and uh, do you need to, to approach the shot maybe a little bit differently? Uh, this is a great question because uh, I deal with this on a daily basis regardless of the skill level of the client that I've got. 
from an elite player all the way down to the beginner, the tight lie, the, the hard pan lie can be really scary if you're not somebody who hits through the shot, if you're not somebody who knows how to use the bounce of the club correctly, and if your ball position is off. One of the first things I do with amateurs is have them understand where their swing bottom is, where the middle of their swing is, and what it does when it interacts with the ground. Regardless of the golf club, how does that club react? It's called ground interaction. And where is it taking place within your stance? That's going to be a really good indication of where your ball position should be. Is it consistent is the real key. And if you've got any kind of weight shift going on in short game, that middle of the stance is going to be very inconsistent. So you really want to try to get a little bit more weight, not a lot, maybe 5 to 10% max, more onto the front side for the right-hander, the left leg, the left-hander, the right leg. So you can stabilize that swing bottom. From there, it's a matter of making a decision. Am I trying to get the ball up in the air or am I trying to get it to roll? And, and most of the time, if you're unobstructed to the green, you don't have anything in front of you, as Pete was saying, roll is your best friend. What can we do to get the ball up and over our obstacle and rolling to the hole? And what club will do that? So in Pete's case, he was saying, you know, it could be a lot of different clubs, anywhere from, say, a hybrid even down to a 60-degree wedge. But what's really important here is the bounce of the club. And if you look at your wedges, each probably has a slightly different bounce, a slightly different grind. And therefore, those clubs are going to interact with the ground slightly different. What you're really looking to do is to make sure it doesn't bounce hard. And what I mean by bounce is think of a basketball. If you slam it down hard, it bounces right back. You don't want the club to dig either. You'll see a lot of people sort of stub, not go through the shot. And when that happens, the club will dig. There's not enough bounce. What you're looking for is a club that's going to interact with the ground, graze it. You'll hear a nice little thump to it. But it makes clean ball contact and allows you to go through the shot. So with the ball position correct, the weight a little forward, getting the right bounce on the club that you need, and then going through the shot. Uh, as Brian said before, we, there's a lot of people who get ball bound, and having that observation, that vision in your mind that you're going to go through and hit something through the ball is really your saving grace because if you decelerate on a hard pan, most everybody mm -hmm. thins it. You wonder why it's way past the hole, and that's exactly what happened. You didn't hit through it. You hit at it. So the setup positions are critical. The interaction of the bounce, the sole of the club is critical. All you've got, if you've got all those things done, just go ahead and make the swing in the proper setup shouldn't be a big deal from there. You should not be as fearful of those shots anymore. Yeah, great answer, uh, John. And, you know, it, it goes back to what I said earlier is, you know, I think you have to understand the shot. This is where a lot of people run into the problems is they get up there and they're more focused on purely the distance to the hole or the distance to the target that they want, and they don't really stop and think about the type of shot, whether they're in a, a tight line, uh, you know, as you suggested, John, or, or, or whether they're in thick, fluffy, rough, and, and, you know, they are obviously aware of the position, but they don't always understand that, that you know, each situation may require a different shot and a different adjustment in, in your game. So, um, 
you know, you, you've got to be cognizant of that. And I think, again, it goes to, to your, your course management, and this is why it's important. Uh, you know, it's great to be at the driving range and hitting golf balls, but when you're hitting off the same lie and the same uh, conditions all the time, uh, you're not really getting a true test of what you're going to be faced with out in the golf course. So, uh, And this brings me to uh, another tip here, uh, Brian, which I'm going to give you, and, and that is really picking clubs that are matching uh, your playing style. Um, you know, the rule of golf obviously allows you to carry uh, 14 clubs and uh, for a reason. And uh, so you want to be able to, to attack uh, various situations, as I just suggested, on the golf course. Uh, but a lot of golfers, I think, are often confused about which situation deserves which club. And in turn, uh, it, this causes sort of a reluctance. And more often than not, we see a lot of players will just play maybe one or two or three uh, clubs in their bag, and the rest of them don't even get touched, where maybe some of these others. So maybe give us some examples, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, of you know, when, when you're you know, putting the clubs in your bag, if you will, or, or uh, you know, just give us a, maybe a scenario or two um, of, of really how you can use some of the other clubs that maybe you're traditionally not using uh, out in the golf course. Well, Ted, Ted great question. Um, you know, it, depend, it all depends on the player, obviously. You know, better players are going to be able to utilize more clubs in the bag because of the distance, you know. But uh, most, most amateurs, I think, the first thing that came to my mind when you said picking clubs is 75% of shots that are, are missed are usage the right and short of the greens. And I think in general, when amateurs are picking clubs, I don't think they pick enough club, okay, because they, they usually take a club based on the, their best shot and how far it can go, say a 7-iron, 150. But they're not realizing if they miss hit that 7-iron off the toe or heel, that ball's not going to go 150 yards. It might go 140 yards. So I think that that would definitely – help um, amateurs to score better by picking a club that's more than they think, number one. Number two, um, I thought of practice. You know, typically amateurs tend to practice with clubs that they know they can hit. But in terms of getting better, they need to pick clubs that they can't really hit um, so they can turn those weaknesses into strengths. And I think our practice habits, uh, lead us to comfort, right? And I think just like anything else, you have to get out of your comfort zone to get better. And so pick clubs that you're not good at. And then I think the other thing when um, you pick other clubs, instead of what you said, tip, using the same clubs over and over, by seeing different trajectories and what a club can do, I think players can learn the game better because they're learning about the club's design what it's meant to do in terms of trajectory and distance. And I think that goes into the learning process of any golfer, especially beginners. What, what does this club do? Um, what is, what does my higher lofted clubs do? And how does, it, how does it spin the ball? And, and going back to the short game question you had, you know, when it comes to picking clubs, I like to take a student to say 20 yards off a of green and say, all right, I want to see you hit four different clubs to the same target right. and how do they react you know are you going to start rolling the ball with a putter or a hybrid or what what happens when you pull out that 60 degree wedge and which which are you more consistent with so i think there's a lot of learning that can that can go on when you pick different clubs and experiment with different lies but um it that's that's important in learning this game the club's design ted 
I think is is overlooked. Clubs are designed for impact. Okay, they're built that way, and our job is to hold them and swing them, and not try to manipulate them. And I think if we just let the club um, do what it's supposed to do design-wise, we we'd hit better shots. So picking clubs that's that's a great question. Um, pick a lot of them and 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 get to use them and practice and. I think that goes, you know, better players just know that. And and beginners and um, higher handicappers need to. Yeah, that's a great answer too, Brian. You know, and it goes, guys, really to, to this. Um, you know, as I said right at the very top of that question, you know, we're allowed 14 clubs in the bag. And I think, as you suggested, Brian, and, and I know the other guys would, would concur, you know, get out there on, on – you know, the practice tee, there's a lot of different areas. You don't have to make it a perfect lie. You can go down sometimes one end of the, or the other of the tee box, and a lot of times there might be some undulations in that. And, and you want to create uh, some different situations, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second, a little bit more detail, but uh, with the next question. But, you know, one of the problems with a lot of golfers is they don't experiment. Um, they think that, well, okay, this particular shot I normally would hit my – uh, you know, my, my uh, 60 degree wedge or my 52 degree wedge. Um, but sometimes a nine iron might work just as well and might actually produce a better shot. So, you know, you can utilize those 14 clubs in a lot of different ways with a lot of different shots. I mean, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, um, the only club you can use in uh, out of the bunker is a, a sand wedge. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, I've seen uh, players at greenside bunkers, I've seen them use their nine iron uh, depending on the situation. So, um, you know, it, uh, again, understanding the shot at hand uh, and experimenting uh, when you have those opportunities, uh, whether it be through a teaching lesson uh, or on your own at the practice tee, can, can really uh, do a world of good. Um, Pete, I'm going to come back up to you, and we're going to talk about uh, really, um, and this really goes to, to more of the mental side of the game, but, you know, obviously for those that, that have the opportunity to, to walk uh, on the golf course as opposed to having to take a, a power cart, um, I think have a little bit of an advantage because it gives them more, <coughs> pardon me, more time uh, to really think between the shots. But, um, you know, we always wonder how tour players seem to maintain their concentration throughout rounds. Um, well, part of the reason why some of the best players in the world is because they're walking between their shots. And as you walk, you can let your mind kind of wander uh, a little bit and, and, Sometimes for a while you can get away from the golf course and think about something else, maybe think about a trip that's coming up, and it kind of decompresses that mental uh, picture, if you will. Um, and then also, too, it gives you a chance as you're walking up to your ball, maybe you know, uh, 30, 40 yards away, uh, it gives you an opportunity to start uh, analyzing the situation. So, um, Pete, talk a little bit about that. And, and I know it, it might be a little bit of a disadvantage for people that are uh, on a cart and, and getting up to their ball a little quicker, but... Uh, that time from when you hit your shot until your next shot can be very, very valuable uh, mentally. Talk a little bit, if, if you wouldn't mind, about how some of the things that you can utilize uh, to play smarter. You know, I've always said the, the best way to play golf is to play with a caddy and walk because, uh, you, as you were talking about, you have so much more you can observe and see, um, and it, it allows you to settle down a little bit, I think, between shots and and, uh, and really enjoy the golf course a little bit more as well. But I think when you're walking, you know, especially 
you know, after you hit the shot and, and you, you get a better idea of the surroundings around you, because every time you come into a situation of a shot, you're going to, you know, you know, what are we up against? And, you know, what are we going to use in this situation to produce what we need or what we see? And I think as you're walking, it, it in, enhances the, the visualization that you're going to use, um, you know, as you're approaching the shot, as you're looking at it. And you can do the same thing in a cart, too. I know you just get there faster, but, you know, you can also take it a, a time to step back a little bit, look at the situation you're in, look towards the green. What do you see? What's there? What do you feel? And, and take that time to, you know, visualize what you're trying to do and, you know, look at the situation that your ball's in. You just talked about tight lies and, and things like that. You know, um, when I worked with the Jacob schools and, and, and John would come along, I, I, I can still hear him say this all the time. What are we up against and what are we trying to do? And he would always ask that first and foremost, you know, what are we trying to do out of this situation? And sometimes you can do what you picture and sometimes you can't as the situation may keep you from doing that. But I, I think, you know, having the chance to walk up, especially in the fairway shots, but then after that, I think what's really, really valuable is when you're walking towards the green because you can see uh, in the distance what you're looking at is, is one side pitched higher than the other. You can start to, you know, visualize what the green looks like, um, you know, how the ball may roll on the green so by, by looking at what you're looking at. Um, you know, one of the things I always like to picture is if you had sprayed water on the green, where would it go? Um, it gives you a pretty good idea of what's going on in that visualization too. But as you're walking up to the green, pay attention to what you see. Um, you know, how's the green look? What's around the green? You know, I think it can help you in those types of situations uh, get a little bit of an idea of what you might be trying to play before you get up there. Now, obviously, you have to see how your ball sits before you can go from there and what situation it's in. But I think, you know, walking to me has is, is, is always been, the, you know, to, to me the best way to play golf. But I think, you know, you can still have the time when you're on a golf cart to take that visualization and, and really look at the surroundings uh, as you're going to it. And, and um, you know, I, I, I can tell you what's, what's really funny when, when talking about that. I was, I was playing with my son last summer, and he said, you know, when did they put that there on one of the holes? I said, what do you mean? It's been there the whole time. He said, I've never saw right. it. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, you'd be amazed at what you can actually see if you look up and look at it. So there's a lot of beauty on the golf course and a lot of it's missed because you're not looking. So I, I think it's, it's really important to look at the surroundings, look at what you're up against and then how you can proceed from there. Right. Great answer. Um, and, and you're exactly right, Pete. You know, there, there's more often than not, you know, uh, again, obviously in a perfect world, when you're walking on the golf course, you have a little bit extra time uh, in between shots to, to sort of gather and, and assess that information. But, you know, even on a golf cart, you know, a lot of times we get distracted in conversation and obviously we want everybody to have fun when they're out there in the golf course. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, 100% focused all the time. Um, but, you know, when you're when you're faced with a situation and, and um, you know, especially when you're playing in some, uh, you know, some hilly conditions, um, you know, you, you, there's a lot of things that have to be factored in. And, and more often than not, what ends up happening is people drive up to their ball. They're not really paying attention. They get up there and now they're spending all this time once they get to the ball um, and really missed a lot of opportunity in, in assessing the situation before they got there. And, you know, this is also adds to slow play because you get people up there and they're now taking 
you know, an extra five or so minutes uh, assessing the situation when some other information could have been gathered along the way. So uh, definitely some great advice. Um, John, uh, speaking of slopes and breaks and, and hilly conditions, this is an area that really stumps a lot of people both on and off the green. Um, maybe you can touch a little bit on both. Um, you know, one of the reasons it's so hard, I think, to, to maintain accuracy in golf is, uh, according to a lot of the research out there, is we are – uh, genetically wired to see uh, level things better. So when we get in a situation where something isn't level or angles have changed, um, you know, it, our the position, I guess, if you will, of our internal gyroscope kind of gets uh, can throw things off sometimes. So we have to make adjustments. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. Let's talk first uh, about maybe some of the, the um, situations with um, lie conditions and things like that in, in, uh, in slope, if you will, um, you know, out on the golf course, maybe touch a little bit as well uh, once we get to the green. You're exactly right as far as being hardwired. I, I, I'm a voracious reader of uh, biophysics, biomechanics. I, I, I find myself reading some really off-the-wall topics that eventually help me out. And, and something I read back in November was how we and our eyesight develop. And up until the age of four, all we really see uh, is straight lines and 90-degree angles. And it's off of those straight lines and 90-degree angles that right around the age of three or four, we start developing the understanding of curvature, which we'll get back to here in a second with uh, green reading. As it relates to uneven lies, uh, we can't see the straight line. It's, it's difficult. Most people are looking at the straight line from nowhere near the straight line. And what I mean by that is standing behind the ball far enough away where you can focus both eyes on the ball and make a line between you and the ball and the target. Most people don't stand on that line. They stand to one side or the other. And that's good. It's going to change how you see things. Combine that with a lie that's downhill, uphill, side hill. All of a sudden, the lines and the 90-degree angles, they, they become really uh, confusing is a term I'll use. Uh, with that being said, I try to make it easy for people. I think there's two rules of thumb for uneven lines and that is ball position middle. Uh, regardless of where you think the ball position should be, you're going to make adjustments to where you're holding the club or how you're placing yourself into the shot where the ball position, it's just got to be middle. It guarantees you strike the ball, not the bigger, the bigger ball. Secondly, an extra club. In all but, in all but one of the situations, you're going to need an extra club for some odd reason. Except for the downhill lie, which requires one less club, if you'd imagine this, if a club is sitting flat, and then all of a sudden you take the front edge of that club and start declining it, you're going to decrease the loft, and that's why you're going to need one less club. So it, it balances out the, the loft that you're losing. All the others either an uphill, you're gaining loft, you're going to need an extra. Ball below your feet, you're going to need the extra length of the club just to stay down and get to the ball. Ball above your feet, 
Ball's a little closer to you, so you're going to be choking down on the club, choking down on the club near the end of the grip. It's going to shorten the club, potentially shorten the length of the shot. So in three out of the four, you're going to need that extra club. Ball position middle, again, make some practice swings so you understand where that club bottoms out. And then lastly, the uphill downhill, Make sure take a take a pick. I, I've heard a lot of different things with this, and I've come to the I've come to the conclusion that certain people feel things differently than others. So I used to teach, let's get your shoulders parallel to the hill. Then I taught get your waist and belt parallel to the hill. Pick one. You don't necessarily have to pick both. The best players in the world are capable of doing both and, and maintaining their balance. If you're an amateur, you're more of an arm swinger, get those shoulders there. If you're more of a lower body type swinger, let's get the let's get the belt parallel to that and let's set up your weight such in such a way where you can keep your balance and still turn. Those are really the simplicities to hitting those shots. But again, if you can't see the straight line, how do you know where to place your belt or your shoulders? And that's really critical. Um, as far as putting, whether you're 20 feet away or 200 feet away, you'll see the straight line first before you ever see the curve. When you start seeing the hills, your your mind is literally trying to make a 90-degree angle from the hole to where you think you ought to aim to, and it's at the point where the ball breaks that you start seeing the curvature. But it's based off of a 90-degree angle far beyond where you think that ball's going to curve a totally different subject that we can get into for an entire hour. But Ted's right. It's You are hardwired to see straight lines and 90-degree angles. Use them to your advantage. When the lie is really funky for yourself, you'll be very surprised how you make it simpler that way for you to see where you want to go and what you want to do. Great, uh, great answer, John. And, and, you know, it goes back to some of the things we talked about a few moments ago, and, and that is – you know, practice these things whenever possible. When you go to the driving range, don't just tee it up in, you know, a perfectly flat lie. Go to, uh, you know, most driving ranges, uh, certainly a lot of them, not all of them, but uh, might have a, a few hills or, or undulations, if you will, even on the tee, teeing area, um, you know, and, and, you know, as long as you're not going to be hitting anybody or in anybody's way, um, but, but try to do that or go to a, a, an area in the practice uh, tee and, and just, you know, Try some of these different things, um, and always uh, most of them will do it. But uh, you know, always talk to your your uh, teacher prof- uh, teacher professional or coach, and say to them, you know, th- this is an area I really struggle with. And you know, when we go out on the on the course today, let's let's try to create some of those scenarios and and work on some of these parts of the game because, you know, I, I don't know how many, uh, and I guess we would all probably have, have probably had hundreds of golfers, if not more, uh, that the very situations and scenarios that John just pointed out. You know, we we see our students um, that never practice any of these, and those are situations that they are going to be frequently um, faced with out on at any given day and any go- given golf course. And you know, you can't just practice the perfect lies and the perfect conditions all the time. You've got to practice the the imperfect lies and the imperfect conditions as well, because otherwise, um, you know, you're just you're just losing strokes. And and this is why people struggle so much with their handicap. Um, uh, Brian, I'm going to give you the, the last question. This is a little bit different. We're going to talk about uh, stretches and, and uh, you know, pre-round, if you will, 
um, some of the most important stretches as we get ready, especially for, for you folks up in the northeast and northwest that's still a little bit cooler up there and you're not quite uh, out in the golf course yet or uh, out in the uh, the practice facilities. Um, and some areas are, are shoulders, lower back, and hip flexors. Um, why don't you just maybe give us a couple of examples or a few examples, uh, Brian, of, of really what you try to get your students uh, to do uh, early in the season for those that maybe don't have the ability to to work on uh, uh, their game indoors at an indoor facility um, and they're getting out for the first time here in the next uh, month or so, what are some things, maybe some stretches or exercises that you might have them do in order to get them uh, flexible and ready for a new season? Ted, great question. You know, it's funny. A lot of our students at our clubs, you know, they spend 40 hours a week at their job. They're sitting and stuff. And then come Saturday morning, you know, they put a golf club in their hand and, and they expect their body to be ready for that, you know, for 50 to 80 swings or whatever it may be. They're, they're not conditioned for golf, you know, if, if you're not moving your body. So I call it groundwork in, in the wintertime to get on the ground, okay, and just start getting up from the ground. You'd be amazed how much you have to use your core and then your legs to get stronger. A simple exercise is just like a sit-up just getting your upper body forward from from the ground takes so much effort if you're not used to moving those muscles. Um, you'd be surprised how many people can't do one or two sit-ups, okay? A simple exercise like that, and and keep it simple, a basic plank, you know, get, getting your elbows under your shoulders, getting on your toes, a nice, nice flat back can really improve your core strength and, and shoulder strength, getting ready for the season. And then the specific areas I look at, most people are very tight in their upper T-spine, okay? They have limited external rotation of their arms. So, you know, if you were standing up, you know, get your arms going backwards, okay? That's great to help the back swing and stuff and loosen up the upper back. And then also um, lunging and some some body weight squats are great to, to get some good lower body stability and leg strength for that. You know, you don't have to go to a gym and get on equipment to, to improve your body for golf. You need to get on the ground and just do basic functional patterns that we did as kids, just trying to get up off the ground, and you'll strengthen your body. And, you know, the other thing about stretching, Ted, up here in the Northeast, you know, most people haven't hit a ball for four or five months, and Injury prevention is what I tell everybody. You're, you're working out or you're stretching so you don't get injured. That first month of the season is so critical. You know, everybody yep, comes yep. out in April and they're hitting hundreds of balls, and then by Tuesday they can't walk because their hamstrings are, are tight or their, their low back's tight or their shoulders are hurt. So, you know, you have to just keep moving. And the other thing I think, if you can just get a club in your hand every day, and just make 25 to 50 swings righty and lefty, that's plenty of stretching you need to keep your golf muscles ready to go come springtime. You know, just, just swinging a club. You know, our, we don't do that all week. If you don't have a club in your hand, I'm, you know, you're not flexing over. You're not turning your shoulders. You're not turning your hips. So just just trying to repeat the golf swing is a great exercise, Ted. I, 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 I'm, I fully believe you know, most of our people that are over over 35, they don't move enough anymore to play golf as good as they can. And I think trying to have a mentality of what did I do as a kid? 
you know, I would throw balls, I would climb trees, I would bend over. All those patterns help is going to help your golf game and, you know, just your total wellness, you know, for everyday life. So those those are the, some of the stretches I try to teach my students, Ted. Yeah, it's a great answer, Brian. And, and you know, it, it just goes to, as you pointed out, Brian, overall wellness. I mean, obviously nutrition is important as well. What we, you know, the fuel that we put into our bodies is going to help uh, you know, if we're putting a lot of junk in there every day, um, you know, that's not good for our overall wellness. But uh, you're exactly right. Uh, and, and this is not, you know, I, I don't want to be picking on the people up in the northeast or the northwest uh, because there's lots of people down here in the south that don't do a lot of stretching and, and whatnot either, even though we have, you know, good conditions pretty much all year round for playing golf down here. Um, you know, I, I can't begin to tell you, and I know you can all uh, agree with this, uh, how many um not even students, but, but golfers in general that we see out there in the golf course. And as soon as they address the ball, you can pretty much tell um, by their posture and their setup that they're, they've got issues. And, and it's not necessarily that they're in pain or anything, but they're just, they're, their muscles are not stretched properly and, and uh, they're compensating in other ways. And I think that they would have a much better enjoyment. And, and I think it's preventative, as you suggest, Brian. I think it's, it's a good idea for folks to get out there and to prevent injuries, to do some good stretching. And, and one way to, to really, um, you know, again, not just going to the gym and, and hitting the weights or hitting the machines, uh, but maybe uh, with the help of your, your golf pro, you know, maybe connect with a, a golf fitness instructor, somebody that specializes in specific stretches and specific uh, exercises um, that are going to help your golf game. Um, because going to the gym, it's great. It's nice to, to, to do whatever you can, but a lot of those uh, weights and equipment that we often use at the gym uh, are actually counterproductive uh, for good golf swings. They tend to bulk up and they tend to create other issues that um, that are not always uh, conducive for a good golf game. So um, some great advice uh, tonight, guys. And, and I wanted to, you know, one of the things I want to do this season is to really uh, get into some questions and some challenging uh, questions, particularly uh, in areas that, that you know, we, we don't normally talk about. Um, and I think we covered a few of them here for sure tonight. Um, because a lot of golfers, again, you know, aren't uh, practicing at a tight lies or they're not uh, sure of how to handle situations uh, with their short clubs and, and so on. And, and sometimes they're not fully utilizing their clubs either. Um, you know, we, we're given 14 clubs in the bag for a reason and we need to make as, as good a use as, as possible. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, it's, it's all for naught. Um, so, guys, I, I want to thank you very much for um, helping to uh, to uh, get the, the season going here on, on Coach's Corner. You did a, a great job, as always. And I want to give each of you, we'll start in order again, uh, Pete, uh, Brian, and then uh, or Br- Pete, John, and then Brian. Um, uh, let the folks know if they want to reach out, the best way to do it. Well, hey, thanks, Ted. They can reach me at Plain Simple Golf. The plane is P-L-A-N-E. Uh, plainsimplegolf.com all my contact info's out there and and um there's a place you can ask questions and you know if anything with your golf game if you have any, any question at all you know it's great to reach out to you know any of us and uh i would say for with john and and, and brian it's always a, a great fun to be with you guys as well but reach out to any of us and ask the question to get the dialogue started it's a great way to do it to to figure out uh, how to best go about your golf game well said thank you uh um, John, how about yourself? Well, for me, it's real easy. John Hughes Golf. Put an at sign in front or behind, and you're going to find me, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, it doesn't matter. 
uh, website, johnhughesgolf.com. Reaching out to me is pretty simple. If you get in touch with me by 5 o'clock any day, you're guaranteed a reply that day, and I'm probably one of the few people in the industry that guarantee that. I've also started a new program in 2020. It's my video subscription program. Basically boils down to if you send me videos of your swing, you'll get video lessons from me. Uh, more information on my website about that. And again, thanks, Ted, for having us on. Pete, Brian, honored to be on with you. Thank you, John, as always. Um, and Brian, uh, last but not least, the best way if folks want to reach out and if you have anything uh, specific that you want to share. Um, to reach me, you, either on Facebook or Instagram, just search Brian Dobby. Um, you'll find some great video tips I do on Instagram on the short game and a lot of things we talked about tonight. Uh, my email address, I've got a new one now. It's um, brian.dobby at trumpnational.com. Um, if you're up here in the Northeast, we've got an awesome learning center year-round over at uh, Trump National. So uh, if you're looking for that winter lesson or um, some fitness ideas, give me a call. And, Ted, so happy to be back on the show with you. And um, Pete and John, I've learned so much from listening to you guys tonight. And have a, have a great season. Thanks for all your help tonight, guys. Appreciate it. And Brian, congratulations on, yeah, congratulations, Brian, on your new position at uh, Trump National. I know that uh, you're going to enjoy it there. It's a great facility. And uh, thank you as well for, for joining uh, tonight uh, on the program. And, and guys, um, you know, as I always say, I mean this sincerely, you guys bring a lot to the show and, and have really helped to uh, help it grow into its eighth season. And uh, I'm really excited to continue the journey and Lots of other good things coming up, and uh, next week I'm going to have a special announcement on the show as, as well as uh, out through all of the social media uh, platforms as well. But uh, thank you guys for always bringing your best, and I appreciate it very much, and I'll see you guys the next time on, go- on uh, the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, Thanks Ted. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks, guys. All right, that was uh, Pete Buchanan and uh, John Hughes and Brian Dobby. Uh, all great uh, golf professionals and uh, always uh, a pleasure having them here uh, on the uh, Coach's Corner panel. They come back uh, each and every year, and we have a lot of fun. And hopefully you guys uh, learned some things uh, tonight from some of the discussion. And for some reason, if you uh, uh, didn't um, happen to uh, catch the earlier part of the show, uh, if you go to blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash golf talk live at the end of the broadcast tonight, uh, you can scroll down to the on-demand section and listen to the recorded version in its entirety. It'll be available uh, shortly after the uh, air, uh, the show uh, ends uh, live um, at uh, 8 p.m. Central. So uh, be sure to do that, and you can hear uh, some great tips from the guys. I'm going to be joined here uh, shortly by my special guest tonight, Pete McDaniels, uh, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him in just a, a moment or two. Uh, but let me just remind everybody that uh, Golf Talk Live is brought to you uh, by the iGolf Sports Network. And the iGolf Sports Network, or iGolfSports.com for short, is a live stream broadcast and media production company uh, that I created uh, late last year. Uh, and it's designed to provide top quality programming uh, really to help uh, attract golfing enthusiasts. And uh, I'm going to be launching a, a live stream uh, and, and media site uh, a little bit later this season. I'm still putting all of the components together, but I'm going to have some great uh, folks that are going to be part of it. 
many who have been on the show here over the years uh, are going to be uh, regular contributors, and got a, it's going to be a very, very interesting format. So I hope you'll uh, join us once that uh, comes uh, official and live uh, online, and I'll, again, keep you posted as we go along. But uh, um, it's, uh, it's something I'm very, very excited about and uh, something else that I'm going to announce uh, next uh, week uh, here on the show and also through uh, social media. And uh, you can also catch on, and I'll, uh, during the outro, of course, it will uh, remind you, but uh, there's some other great ways that you can uh, listen into the show as well. If you go to uh, iTunes uh, or if you go to um, uh, Stitcher, uh, TuneIn, uh, TalkStream Live, um, Spotify, and CastBox are some other great ways that you can tune into the show. Again, just uh, type in Golf Talk Live up in the search box, and uh, you can catch the show there. And you can follow it there as well uh, and get regular updates as new uh, episodes uh, uh, are, um, are coming up. And uh, the show airs live on the blogtalkradio.com network every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, unless otherwise stated. Uh, so be sure you can tune in uh, live as we are tonight. All right, my very special guest tonight, I'm very, very excited to have him on the show. He uh, was on several years ago, uh, and uh, he's uh, just a wonderful uh, asset, if you will, to the golf industry uh, and just life in general. Um, of course, I'm talking about Pete McDaniels. He's a retired golf writer uh, and who still remains active as a freelancer and blogger for the African-American Golfers Digest uh, magazine, and you can also uh, catch a lot of his great work at PeteMcDaniel.com. Uh, uh, he was a senior writer, contributor, uh, editing uh, editor, excuse me, for Golf Digest and Golf World magazines uh, from 1993 to 2013. Uh, his primary responsibility for much of that time was to collaborate on instructional and feature articles with Tiger Woods. Uh, prior to joining Golf Digest, he served as a senior writer for Golf World magazine for four years and sports editor for the uh, Hendersonville uh, Times News for 13 years, uh, where he earned numerous North Carolina Press Association writing awards. Uh, among some of his many accolades, uh, Pete is a recipient of the Harlem YMCA's Black Achiever in Industry Award, uh, co-authored Earl Wood's best-selling book, Training a Tiger, uh, inducted into the National Black Golf Hall of Fame and the African American Golfers Hall of Fame. Uh, he also co-authored Tiger Wood's all-time best-selling golf instructional book, How I Play Golf, and wrote the critically acclaimed uh, Uneven Lies, uh, the Heroic Story of African Americans in Golf. Uh, he also uh, co-wrote and co-produced the documentary Uneven Fairways, which aired on the Golf Channel in 2008. And he also produced uh, the exhibit Honoring the Legacy, a tribute to African American golfers uh, or African Americans in golf at the World Golf Hall of Fame. So please welcome my very special guest tonight, uh, Pete McDaniels. Good evening, Pete. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much, Ted. Boy, that guy did all that? My. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. I'm, I'm, amazing from a little, well, little country boy from the mountains of western North Carolina. Huh? <laughs> you have certainly uh, done so many wonderful things, Pete. And, uh, again, thank you very much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, I appreciate you giving of your time always. And uh, it's always a pleasure and honor to have you on. And uh, I've got to make a point of having you on more often because uh, we – um, and we're going to share a little bit tonight uh, about what I'm about to say, but um, uh, I actually reached out to Pete not only to, to come on the program, but uh, to uh, be involved in another project, which I talked about a little bit earlier, and we'll get into a little bit more detail uh, as we go along. But um, before we do that, uh, I, I know that you want to honor 
uh, a gentleman, uh, John Merchant, who passed away uh, a week ago tonight. Uh, and he was a, a longtime lawyer and civil rights activist uh, credited with really opening professional golf to a- the African-American players. Uh, and as I mentioned, he passed away uh, after a long illness uh, last Thursday. Uh, he was 87. So why don't you share a little bit about him uh, and, and really um, what he meant to you and, and, and what he's done for golf? You know, um, Ted, I I know we discussed that, and, and I did want to touch on that. And, uh, but in light of uh, what happened at the uh, Players' Championship today, I'd like to just comment on that first, if you don't mind. Sure. It was the most surreal day that I've ever had in my long career. Um, you know, watching um, the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Monahan, um, mm-hmm. you know, he actually struggled as uh, I guess anyone would have in that position, having to um, inform the media that spectators would no longer be allowed to attend PGA Tour events uh, through uh, the next three and a half weeks. Um, and maybe even longer than that if this coronavirus continues to wreak right. havoc uh, the way it has so far. Um, we've never seen anything like that before. And it touched mm-hmm. a lot of people, um, not only the fans and, and the players and everyone involved in the golf industry, but uh, also the media. I mean, we, right. my colleagues and I, you know, discussed it. Uh, at length, and it was just, uh, it just shows you that you never know what's going to happen in life, and, and we need to cherish the day, as uh, Sade said in a in a song some years ago. Um, having mm-hmm. said that, um, there will be light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and we will get through it as a nation, as a world, and we'll be much better for it. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, John March and yeah, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. What I was just going to add real quick, well, I was just going to add real quick, um, Pete, to, to what you were talking about. And, and you know, another, I guess, segment of, of a group, if you will, that, that probably people don't realize is, is all of the volunteers and all of the people that work at these PGA Tour events that are also going to be affected because obviously if the fans are not there, a lot of the concessions and, and uh, you know, as you pointed out, media and so forth um, are also... Um, not going to be required uh, at these events uh, when when you don't have uh, the fans attending. So there's definitely, uh, in addition to the fans and obviously media, there's a lot of other support staff and and um, volunteers that uh, are are not going to be required, obviously, for these particular events. So yeah, it's affecting uh, a lot of folks. But uh, I just wanted to mention that as well. Uh, but please go ahead. Far-reaching, far-reaching impact, and um, and our heart goes out to everyone that is being uh, negatively impacted. John Merchant. John Merchant. I met John Merchant in 1993. Um, I just joined uh, Golf World Magazine as a senior writer, and uh, John was at the forefront of organizing symposiums, um, which were intended to uh, level the playing field uh, through more inclusion and diversity in the game of golf in the entire industry, as a matter of fact. Um, He was a fiery man, uh, um, 
Connecticut attorney, um, had already achieved so much in life before he uh, began his crusade uh, in, in the golf industry. He was the first African-American graduate um, from the University of uh, Virginia's law school um, and had so many other accomplishments. He was a, he was a titan uh, when it came to uh, pursuing matters of uh, equality uh, and justice um, throughout um, the golf industry. Um, he uh, was very personable. Uh, he belonged to the country club of Fairfield in Connecticut, uh, which was a stone's throw from my tiny apartment at Fairfield Field Beach. And Johnny and I became fast friends. He might have even been responsible for uh, me being hired by Golf World Magazine. I don't know. He never said, but I had a feeling that you know, if anyone um, you know, had a hand in it, it would have been John. Um, a, a pretty good golfer, a single-digit handicapper in his youth and well into his um, adulthood. And he loved the game of golf, but he he fought tirelessly uh, to make sure that everyone, no matter who they were or what their background was, had an equal opportunity to participate in the in the game and, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. And he did that until his dying day passed um, a little bit over a week ago and right. the world lost a great champion in uh, in John Merchant. You know, and and what's really interesting, um, you know, about what you said is, is the fact that, you know, he tires, uh, you know, tirelessly um, pursued that agenda, if you will, of, of inclusion and, you know, in, in so many areas of life, not just golf, but, you know, obviously we, we we're striving to do that. And, and, you know, and many times over the years, obviously we've, we've fallen short, but it's people like John Merchant who, you know, keep getting back up and, and kept getting back up and, you know, to, to coin a phrase, fighting the good fight right up until the very end. And obviously I know that he had done a lot um, from reading some of the articles that I did uh, about John. Obviously, I didn't have the, the pleasure or honor of meeting him in person, but uh, I was a, a little bit familiar with him. But, um, you know, and, and, and it just goes to really, you know, here was an opportunity for uh, a gentleman who obviously uh, earned his law degree, um, decided that he wanted to focus his efforts and his energies in obviously a, a cause that was important to him um, and he was able to to successfully achieve, I'm sure, a lot of of uh, you know his his uh, agenda and um, and as you said, right up until the very end. And it brings me really to you know the next question that I that I want you to talk about. Um, given what John has done and, and obviously others along the way, um, what is your perception, um, Pete, of the state of the game as far as African Americans concerned? Obviously, we've seen many over the years, going back uh, many many years ago, people like Teddy Rhodes, and you know we saw Charlie Sifford and Lee Elders come along, and then obviously more recently we've seen uh, your good friend Tiger Woods. But overall, how do you feel the, the the state of the game is 
um, and as far as repu- uh, representation of African Americans, um, you know, are we still a long ways away, or are we starting to see some strides? We're still a long ways away. I mean, I've been uh, very grateful that we have made some strides in the game. Um, some players have, have come to the forefront uh, through the first tee and junior golf um, programs around the country. Players like uh, Cameron Champ and and uh, Harold Varner, uh, the third, uh, just didn't spring from any place. They they were, you know, kind of raised to be golfers, much like Tiger was. Uh, different roots, but but um, the same concept. However, the promise uh, that we uh, saw when Tiger turned pro. Actually, when he was winning everything in the in the amateur ranks, and then turned mm-hmm. pro and, and became the player that he was, it just hadn't been fulfilled. Um, and there are various reasons uh, uh, for that, I believe, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I call African Americans in the game the invisible people uh, because of uh, a lack of uh, recognition for our efforts over the years. Um, a lack of recognition um, for all the things that we have accomplished in the game. And if you read on either lines, you'll understand that we have a rich history in the game of golf. Uh, That alone uh, does not um, command, uh, you know, that we have equal footing in the game. But the fact that, you know, we have strived, that we have overcome and still succeeded against um, all odds, uh, if you will, does uh, demand that there should be some consideration uh, for us to to um, get a, a, a bigger piece of the pie, so to speak. Golf is, mm-hmm. uh, the last, at last count, it was um, said that golf is an $84 billion a year uh, industry, and that's a pretty mm-hmm. huge pie. But if you look at, Certainly. um, you know, African Americans <clears throat> and, and other minorities, as a matter of fact, um, we get, uh, table scraps from that. We're consumers. Uh, we spend a heck of a lot of money on golf equipment and playing the game. And, um, and we don't really reap the benefits on the other end. And that has been the challenge. That's the challenge that, John Merchant um, delivered to all of those, all of those of us who followed in his path and who have uh, stepped up and tried to make a difference, and and that's the challenge that we still face today, 20 years after, you know, well, 25 years after Tiger turned pro. So, mm-hmm. and that's the sad thing. African Americans had the number one player in the world. We've had the number one player of the world in the world most of the past 25 years we had a president right. who was a mm-hmm. um, you know he is who is a golf enthusiast uh, the first um the first golfer and during that time um you know we just haven't advanced the way i i and many others uh, believe we should have uh the lpga from uh, just as an example uh, still has had only 
I think there are like six uh, African Americans who have um, been members of the LPGA uh, tour, the LPGA tour. There are many more who are LPGA members. Um, the PGA tour today, there are three players on tour. Um, well, actually, I guess it's four now since uh, young Joseph Bramlett, I think, has his playing privileges again. So you have four who um, of African-American descent in 2020. If you go back to 1974, 1975, maybe through 79, which uh, I refer to as the golden era, of uh, golf as far as as African-Americans are concerned. You you might have had a dozen African-Americans playing or or at least attempting to qualify, Monday qualify, uh, for the tour during that period. Uh, So if if you're pretty good at math, (laughs) you you can kind of Mm, figure out that we've we've (laughs) gone backwards. We've had (laughs) addition by subtraction. So, yeah. and I mean, I, I say this kind of in jest, but it, it's a sad situation. And then if you look at the the members of um, of the PGA of America, I think there there may be fifty um, PGA of America uh, pros uh, who are African American, and mm-hmm. of that number. I would venture to say that less than 20 of them are class A pros. And of those 20, um, if you look around at the country clubs in in this country, um, I can't tell you one that's a head pro or the director of golf um, at one of those country clubs. And this is 2020. You see, so... That's the state of the game, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's a lot of money in this in this industry, and we, quite frankly, do not uh, get um, our share. Uh, and and therefore, I mean, I go to all of these, um, I attend all of these meetings, and and uh, you know where uh, inclusion and diversity um, are discussed among the industry leaders. The PGA of America, to their credit, uh, hosts one every year at the the merchandise show. And there Mm -hmm. are updates and there are um, speakers who, who, um, you know, uh, tout the progress that's being made. I don't see it. You know, I've been listening to the same progress report for 20 something (laughs) years now. Right, it's the just same a, one. I mean, just a, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just just a different year on the report. You know, let me let me just exactly. add to to what you're. Yeah, let me just add Pete to what you're you're talking about. And you're, you're exactly right. You know, when I when I look at the state of the game from from my perspective, um, believe it or not, I actually see it worse than you do um, because, yeah. you know, as you pointed out earlier, you know, they certainly. Uh, organizations like the First Tee and and other organizations, junior golf programs that have reached out to, um, you know, inner city communities and things like that, um, have certainly, um, you know, done a pretty good job and certainly they could always do a better job. 
but there seems to be a disconnect at some point. And I think what really a lot of the problem is, it's it's great that we're introducing the game to you know um, other uh, groups and, and minorities particularly, but the problem is they're not able to stay in the game because there comes a point where financially the costs are such that it, it's no longer affordable. Um, and, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, back in the 70s, you know, we saw a dozen or so uh, African-American pros uh, at any given time, and now suddenly, you know, we're down to about four. And the truth of the matter is there are a number who get in through various different programs. You know, I mentioned uh, Teddy Rhodes earlier, well, uh, and I know you know Peggy Rhodes. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. offer different scholarship programs through uh, the Ted Rhodes Foundation. Um, but the problem is that once it goes beyond that, you know, it, it requires sponsorship. It requires additional investments uh, with these young men and women uh, to be able to further their opportunities, and it's just not happening. And you're right. I mean, it, it's great to have these meetings every year, uh, and I heard a little bit about uh, this year's, um, but again, it's it's almost like it's regurgitating the same discussions that they've had for the last several decades and yes there are some strides and there are uh, some inroads being made but it's at such a snail's pace um, that you know and if I was and obviously I'm not but if I was um, you know somebody within the African-American community and I look at the golf industry as a whole um, I'm not seeing my race being represented very well whether it be the men's tours or the ladies' tours. And again, it's a matter of accessibility. And they need to find a way to not just reach into the communities and introduce them to game, but help them grow through. And whether they make it on tour or not, that's up to them. But they should at least have that opportunity to make that decision. Uh, and if they're not able to do it, and you know, we hear the arguments, well, you, know, you just got to work hard and that. Well, it's not just that simple. Um, you know, you have to have accessibility to uh, funding and financial support uh, in order to be able to, you know, it's not a cheap game. It's an expensive game. It's expensive sport. And you can be the most talented player in the world. But if you don't have those, um, you know, stepping stones along the way to help carry you through, uh, you're just not going to get out there. And I think this is why part of the reason why we're seeing that happen uh, in, in golf, uh, you know, pertaining to to the state of the game today for African-Americans is because it's just, there, there's a disconnect. Um, you know, we're, we're introducing them to the game, but then we're not carrying the ball any further down the field if it, as you were. And I, I think that's um, where the issue needs to be addressed. That is absolutely well said. I agree with every point you've made. Uh, and then Thank I have you. to give, um, you know, I, I give the PGA tour a little pat on the back. Um, there's a, there's an outfit, um, called the Advocates Pro Golf Tour. And it's um, specifically, um, you know, aimed at more diversity and inclusion in that, um, you know, it's a it's a tour, seven or eight events. It may even be 10 now around the country um, in that. Um, and they offer a fairly decent purse for, um, you know, it's a developmental tour. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, several PGA Tour pros, Alvana being one, played on the tour. Um, and, uh, you know, 
it gives you an opportunity to at least play on some def, uh, decent courses. And not only is there not um, is there a lack of sponsorship dollars uh, for these kids that that mostly go to HBCUs, historically black uh, uh, colleges and universities, um, and that's the next level for them after they play high school golf. Uh, they can't really right. get a scholarship to to your major colleges. That's very rare. Um, but a lot of them have pretty good games, and they've come up through the, the junior golf ranks, and some of them even through the first tee, and they play college golf at HBCUs. Um, and they further develop their games, but they are lagging so far behind mainstream mm-hmm. golfers because of the facilities that they they practice, you know, where they practice, uh, the golf right. courses where they play. Um, you know, and and there's 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 the the link, the missing link. So by the time they turn pro, they're already four or five years behind uh, the very people that they want that they have to compete against. So the advocates tour at least gives them an opportunity ten times a year at some pretty good uh, venues to compete. So you might have fifty players. Um, Unknown players, some of them I know them because you know I'm I'm kind of in touch with with these young people and and pull for them and try to offer as much um, support as I can. Um, and these guys can play. I mean, they shoot some tremendous numbers, uh, mid sixties. Uh, the winner winner's purse, I think uh, the winner's check is like seven grand which doesn't pay a whole lot of uh, bills, but at least it allows them to, you know, to stay out there and stay in the game. But we need more of that. We need more right. of it. And, and I'm not just looking at the establishment. I said this when, when uh, Uneven Fairways was released in 2000. Um, I went on national TV, and, and basically I provided what I thought uh, was an insightful uh, look at um, how we can help ourselves. And that mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, there's a lot of black uh, power and money in this country. We have so many celebrities who are wealthy, filthy, rich, yep. Yep. Uh, basketball players, football players, um, mm-hmm. you know, other athletes. And if we would band together and create a pool wouldn't have to be a whole lot of money, just to just say five, ten million dollars to mm-hmm. to uh, help uh, aspiring professionals reach their goals. You know, give them a shot, give them a three year deal, so that they don't have to worry about uh, playing uh, part time and then you know uh, going to a full time job and then you know golf season comes along and then they have to take off a week or two or a month or whatever and try to play and compete. You can't do it that way. It's impossible. Right. At least give them an opportunity to live out their dreams, to to chase that goal. And after three years of not having to worry about anything except competing and they fail to make it, at least they will have had a shot. And that's what's needed, right. in my opinion. 
Well, and, and you're exactly right, and that goes to what I was saying earlier. Is you know we're we've created, uh, you know we've opened the door, as it were, um, in the earlier stages. We have to find a way of tying the ultimate goal of being more competitive out in the golf uh, arena um, with that early stage. And this is where, as you said, with with additional funding, and it would not take a great deal. Um, uh, initially of, of outlay. And there's certainly, as you mentioned, there are many, many people and uh, celebrities in the African-American community that um, could do it on an individual basis, let alone as a collective group. And, and, and this is, I think, sometimes, you know, I think people in general, as they, you know, sort of climb up the success ladder, sometimes forget that they had a journey at some point. And, you know, you I'm I'm a firm believer. I believe you know in, in the man above, and I think we have to find ways of of helping everybody along the way. And and you know when when we reach uh, various plateaus of success in life, we have to find ways of reaching out to others and helping them uh, to achieve and reach their goals. And it, and it really takes very little effort and time to do so, um, but it's just to take that initial first step. And and uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I want to move on, if we can, just a little bit, because I, I know there's so much we could talk about there, but I want to give you a chance because we've got some other things uh, here on the plate. And, and one of them, of course, is your good friend Tiger Woods. Um, what do you mm-hmm. think, where is his game today? And uh, what, how do you feel about his quest uh, for some of the records, uh, particularly, obviously, Jack Nicholas, He's chasing that, that major record and obviously some uh, records that Snead has put out there as well. What do you think of his chances? Is his game, do you think, uh, is it still... Uh, sound enough in this day and age to to reach some of those goals? When he's healthy, it is. Um, I mean, he's proven that. I mean, this this mm. this guy, my good friend, came back from the dead. I mean, he had been written off. Uh, some of <laughs> right. it uh, because of self-inflicted wounds. Uh, you know, we all know mm. the story, and those of us right. who know the story, and and then there are those of us who who uh, think we know the story. So, um, and we. Probably don't, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, um, right. it 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 depends on his health. I don't know what his back, um, you know, what his back problems are. But I I was discussing this uh, at the uh, the media center today. Uh, I remember, um, I think it might have been even last year when he played in uh, the players, or the year before. You know, I'm getting old now, Ted, and I can't remember one year from the next. <laughs> But I recall I during the press conference, he he was talking about how his he was having neck problems, and he said um, that all of the energy since he had his back, you know, the fusion and it was successful, and he said all of that energy has to go someplace, so it was right. going to his neck instead of his lower back, which had been fixed, which had been repaired, and uh, lo and behold. Um, I had spine surgery, you know, cervical mm-hmm. spine surgery. Same thing on my upper back that he had on his lower back. And I found that statement to be so true. You know, mm-hmm. now all of the pressure and all the energy that used to go to my, goes to my lower back. So now I'm having lower back problems. So, so <laughs> and I think it's the same thing that's going on with Tiger. I think that yep. if he can somehow uh, manage his schedule, and and get in some practice and some reps. That's the that's going to be those are going to be the determining factors. The thing that made Tiger Wood great, 
and and this may be news to some people, uh, probably not you, and, and maybe not uh, people who are closely tied to the industry. But the thing that made Tiger great was that he out-practiced everybody. He, right. He hit more balls than anybody. He, he used to laugh at B.J. Singh because B.J. was the, supposedly the consummate practicer, right? Right, and, uh, right. And Tiger would say, yeah, okay. Uh, but I personally know stories about Tiger when, when and your, your, your uh, listeners might be interested in this. When Tiger was uh, first hooked up with Butch Harmon, and he had that terrible uh, swing fault of getting stuck. Um, and you being a professional, you could explain that probably better than I. But anyway, Butch's fix required Tiger to make the same motion uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times without hitting the golf ball. So Tiger told me that he would he would um, make that same motion for a solid hour in the searing sun in Orlando. That wow. was the commitment that he made to correcting that swing fault. And 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 he did that with every part of his game. His 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 uh, mantra was turn this into a strength. That's how he got so good at every part of his game. He figured out what his weakness was, and he worked like heck to make it a strength. So fast forward to 2020. He cannot practice the way he did. Right. Nobody won't allow it. Age, you know, father time is undefeated. And it has taken a toll on him, like it has many other golfers in the past. Uh, but when he's healthy and he's able to get the reps in and get his practice in, he can beat anybody. And that all depends on whether he's healthy enough to practice and prepare for major championships, because quite frankly, that's all he's concerned about right now. Uh, you know, I know he loves the uh, Arnold Palmer Invitational. He loves Jack's tournament. Those aren't his priorities. He's won them all, you know, just about every doggone thing numerous times. So that's not the challenge. The challenge is to win major championships and, and get Jack's record. And in the process, he'll pass Sam Snead uh, as well. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I believe that's his focus. And if he can get healthy and stay healthy, I have no doubt he has the game to do it. Well, and I agree um, with you 100%. I think it's, you know, it's really, it is going to boil down to his health and, and his ability to, to get out there and, and, and keep himself fresh and, and working on the things that he needs to work on. And, you know, as far as focusing on the majors, um, you know, Jack himself said that many, many times, uh, especially as he, you know, started racking them up. I mean, you know, he loved many other tournaments out there, but those were not his priority. His priorities, he felt, were the major championships. Those were, you know, the creme de la creme, if you will. And, uh, you know, he went on to win what he won. And, you know, Tiger's uh, essentially, um, you know, doing the same thing. He's got 15 now, and he's, you know, just a few uh, away. But, um, again, like you said, Father Time is, is really is what's going to dictate. And, you know, Jack, uh, Jack won, uh, you know, his final major, um, you know, uh, just a few years past where Tiger is now. So uh, it's not impossible. And obviously Tiger is, is probably even despite some of his injuries uh, that he's, uh, you know, had to nurse along the way uh, is probably still in better shape than what Jack was at his age. So, 
um, you know, it, it's not out of out of reach for sure. Um, now, also, Tiger is, um, you know, from what you were mentioning here, is um, writing his own story, uh, if you will, uh, after um, many, many books have been, and uh, other things that have been written about him, what uh, what do you see? Is this going to be an autobiography? Is this uh, what do you see happening? I think it will be. You know, um, there have been many books written about Tiger, as you know. And, right. um, and matter of fact, I'm reading one now by a good colleague, a great writer, and, and an excellent reporter, uh, Michael Bamberger. Um, mm-hmm. It's very interesting, but there's nothing new in it. You know, right. that I could glean from it. Um, very well written, very excellent reporting. Um, and I think Tiger, I know, I know it's what he said. He wants to tell his own story. He says, um, you know, that uh, all, of, all of the stuff that has been written about him, um, you know, he hadn't been quoted in much of any of it. <laughs> so... Right. So, uh, and as a writer, I know how difficult that is. I mean, you kind of write around stuff and you, and you get, uh, stories and, and releases and, and stuff like that. And you cobble together a book and, and, uh, it may be credible, but if you don't, if you can't quote the, uh, subject of the, uh, book, uh, you know, and right. I think that's Tiger's point. So he wants to tell his own story, uh, and, and I applaud him for that. I don't know how much of uh, his his uh, life story he's willing to reveal, uh, and that'll be up to him. But I'm I'm sure, uh, you know, skeptics will, will say, oh, okay, well, you know, he's he's telling it from his perspective and he's leaving some stuff out. Well, that's his prerogative. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's how I'm always on his side. You know that, Ted. I I just um yeah because I know how difficult uh, his life has been and people will chuckle at that. Oh, how difficult would it be being a multimillionaire and, you know, but being a person of color to ascend to the top of a sport where you, uh, your people were not welcomed for decades um, and facing that double standard that he has faced and uh, it's hard for me to explain to most people say, what double standard. Okay, well, I can't explain it to you. But suffice it to say, he has faced a double standard. I told him one time we were having a conversation, you know, we ha- we had some in the past, not as many as I would have liked, but um, he was young, and, you know, we were talking about various things, and, and I said, T.W., you know, no matter how many championships you win, no matter how many majors you win, no matter how many records you set or break, there will be some people who will never think that you're the greatest of all time. They just right. won't accept it. And he said, mm-hmm. I know that, Petey. And and so he's very well aware of, um, you know, that double standard that, that he mm-hmm. faces and 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 the reason I love him so much, and I love the way he plays, and and, and I think I know the, the guy that he is inside, um, is because despite those challenges, he has always taken the high road, you know, mm-hmm. always. 
I tell people all the time, I could not have been blessed with that kind of talent and that kind of success because I would have been a butthole. There's no doubt about it. Yep. You know, I would have been so arrogant and so, and I know he's been perceived to be that. Um, I would have handled it so much worse than he has. He has its flaws. We all have flaws. You know, the thing about him is he fell hard. He fell hard. But he got back up, and he continues to strive. And and at this particular point in his life, he wants to be a great father um, mm-hmm. and a great citizen. And I think he's doing quite well. You know, Pete, it's interesting that you know you say all that because you're you're exactly right. You know, even in today's um, you know, way of thinking, uh, and certainly I'm not taking away from, from Jack's record, obviously, but, you know, there, there's the camp that, well, Jack's the, the greatest player that ever lived, and, and there's no doubt that, that he has done some great accomplishments, but even he acknowledges um, Tiger's prowess out in the golf course and what he's done um, to the game that even uh, Jack has not done. I mean, he hasn't won quite as many majors yet as Jack, but um, you know, he's broken many, many other records um, that obviously even Jack uh, had not made. And, and you know, when, when I hear and, and look at early reports of, of, of Jack, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love Jack Nicholas. I, I grew up watching Jack and, and Arnie and, and some of the others. But, you know, I can remember some unkind, certainly not to the same level as, as I'm sure what's been written and, and said about Tiger. But, you know, I can remember some unkind things along the way, um, you know, with an earlier uh, Nicholas, they thought he was, you know, a little bit air because, you know, he was challenging Arnold Palmer. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't like Jack for obviously different reasons. But, you know, so and my point is this, Jack never let it bother him. And obviously, uh, you know, I'm sure Tiger on some level recognizes that doesn't matter, as you pointed out, no matter what he does, there is always going to be somebody that is not going to agree or going to support or what have you. Um, but I think he's secure enough in himself as a, as a man uh, and as an, a human being um, to realize um, that there are just some things. And, and that's with everybody in life. There's, you know, whether it be you, me, or anybody else, there's always going to be people that are just not going to be supportive. Um, doesn't matter what you do, or they're going to be jealous, or they're going to be whatever. So, you know, I think he just needs to, you know, to keep, being the the person that he is and and being truthful to himself and um i i i'm going to be interested to see uh, his story um you know at some point when it when it comes out because i think it is going to be very interesting and i think a, a lot of people are going to be surprised and as far as what he chooses to put in it or not put in it you know it it's irrelevant um you know those are just people that in my opinion have nothing better to do than to you know it's like you said earlier you know everybody had written him off i don't know how many times and, you know, that's it. He's done. He's not coming back. And then, you know, here he is. He, you know, he wins the Masters um, after, uh, you know, a long stint and, and struggle. So, um, you know, heck, there's people out there that have not even won it yet and have been on the tour for 20 years. So, um, you know, that's... His, his life to... is a lesson. I don't mean to cut you off, Ted, but his life... No, if, that's you, if you can, If you can bring yourself not to be... Uh, prejudiced against this, this man. If you can find it in your heart to just look at him as a human being, screwed up like we all do, yet yeah. there was some redeeming quality there that led him back up the up the mountain 
all the way to the top of the mountain. mountain. Uh, if you can find it in your heart to accept that and, and, and uh, you know, then uh, you'll see exactly what an accomplishment it was and the kind of person that it takes that kind of uh, strength, inner strength, mm-hmm. and uh, that it takes to do that. I mean, I've been down. I certainly have had my issues, and I know what it takes yep. to scratch and claw your way back up, uh, not to the extent that he did. To, uh, and he got that from both parents. See, that I think mm-hmm. I'm waiting for him to tell that story. You know, right. It's been said many doggone times in many publications and many that Earl Woods shaped him, and yeah, Earl had a big hand <laughs> in how uh, Tiger turned out and his success and his mindset and, you know, his mental capabilities and his golf and, and all that kind of stuff. But his his uh, his mother, called Tita, mm-hmm. my friend, uh, had played just as uh, important a role in Tiger being the champion that he turned out to be. Um, she was the one who gave him the killer instinct. She was the one who told him to step on their necks. She was the one who inspired him, um, you know, to be the best that he could be. Um, and, you know, she's a tough, low woman. I'm telling you that. I can tell you for sure. <laughs> and, and so he got a lot of that from her. And the discipline, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff, uh, she had a, a hand in it as well. So shared parenting. Well, I think... You know, um, yeah, I agree. I, you know, obviously they both played a hand, but you're you're right. And I think she's, you know, she's more quiet and reserved compared to what Earl was. Earl was was you know more of a, a driving force in in the public eye. So obviously, naturally, you know, as you pointed out, everybody wants to sort of grapple the story around there. But you know, the the real person behind uh, certainly that played a major role was I, I agree was was his mother. And I think, uh, you know, she uh, maybe approached it as far as the media is concerned in a, in a much more humble uh, uh, way, if you will. And, you know, obviously doesn't uh, get as much uh, credit uh, as, as probably she deserves. And that's just simply because she's not somebody that's, you know, in the limelight the same way um, that obviously Tiger and his father were uh, in those earlier years. Um, exactly. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I have no doubt. Listen, I know how my own mother was. So, Believe you me, uh, she was the driving force in my life, and I love my father, and he did a great job too. But, but yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think mothers sometimes get the short short end of the stick, but you know what? They don't mind. They're just there to be supportive. They don't mind. Um, That's right. No, they don't mind. Let's let's talk about. I, I know you've got some other things, and I'm going to touch on very quickly um, a little bit uh, about what you're going to do uh, for me, I guess, or with me. Um, as the folks uh, I've been mentioning here lately, I'm, I'm going to be launching a uh, a um, live stream and, and uh, media broadcast uh, network uh, a little bit later on this season. And um, as I mentioned earlier on when I first brought you on, that uh, in addition to reaching out and having you uh, come on my show tonight, uh, I've asked you to uh, be a participant in, in the iGolf Sports Network, and you very graciously accepted that offer and, and uh, are really going to talk about you know, some of the things that I, I imagine uh, that we've talked about here tonight, but in a little bit more detail in, in really kind of a docu-series uh, on the iGolf Sports Network. And I don't know if we've officially gotten the, 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 um, 
uh, final name, if you will, but uh, one we threw around was uh, Pete McDaniel's Unfiltered. So you're going to tell it straight uh, in this docu-series. Uh, um, maybe you want to add a few uh, points to that and then share some of your other current projects that you're working on. Well, I'm so appreciative, uh, Ted, first of all, that you're, you're giving me this opportunity. Uh, it's a platform, and the one thing that I learned, and you know, going back to John Merchant, was you know, we all have a platform, and we, we have to use it in, uh, to benefit others, and that's what I want to try to do. And so, again, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'm a history buff, uh, and I like to um, I like to give credit where credit is due. And, and there were so many people who came before me who, whose shoulders I and others have uh, been fortunate enough to stand on, and they deserve the recognition for being groundbreakers and and pioneers in, in the golf industry, but not only in the golf industry, but in life. And, and right. these are the people I'd like to spotlight. I'd like to educate. That was the purpose of Uneven Lies, to mm-hmm. uh, and also entertain. Uh, so I'm hoping to be entertaining. Uh, I don't know. I've, uh, hopefully I can. I, I think I do a pretty good job <laughs> as a writer, so maybe I'll, I'll uh, be uh, you know, blessed enough to be able to to entertain uh, uh, during the, the uh, um, you know, the show and, and um, you know, just uh, inform people. I li- and, I, and I shoot straight, you know. You won't agree with everything that I say, and that's okay. <laughs> but right. it's how I feel, you know, and I've been on this mm-hmm. earth a long time, and I've seen a lot of things, and I just would like people to know where I'm coming from. And I want to be relevant. And I think I do mm-hmm. have some relevance that I can add to any discussion uh, through my experience, um, you know, through my, my knowledge. I've, uh, I've gained a little bit of knowledge over the years. So well, that's what it's going to be about. History lessons, uh, little known facts about um, some of the people who helped uh, me be where I am today, to be quite honest with you. I mean, groundbreakers like uh, Charlie Sifford, who was a great, great friend of mine, and uh, some unknown or little-known uh, characters in, in my life, like John Brooks Dendy, uh, mm-hmm. who was the uh, locker room attendant at Biltmore Forest Country Club, who uh, I learned a lot from just by researching him. Uh, great golf champion who tutored uh, a guy that I used to caddy for. I had a regular bag about every Saturday, and uh, a guy named Charlie Owen, who was a club champion, a uh, white guy who was one heck of a player, and he mm-hmm. learned a lot of his golf from John Brooks Dendy, um, you know, who kind of took him under his wing when he was a kid and helped him with his game and, and helped him uh, grow, uh, as a matter of fact, so... Yeah, there are people like that, and um, you know others. Uh, George Johnson who became a, a great friend of mine. Um, George Johnson won on the PGA Tour, and you never hear that name. Pete mm-hmm. Brown, uh, that's more mm-hmm. of a familiar name. Do not realize that uh, Pete Brown was the first African American. I mean, this has been disputed. Charlie Sifford disputed this, but. You know, the record will show that he was the uh, first African-American to win a, a PGA Tour 
sanctioned event. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's a big difference. People might not know the difference between a sanctioned event and a, and a uh, non-sanctioned event. And then, of course, there's Calvin Pete, who um, mm-hmm. should be in the Hall of Fame, should be in the yep. World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, and yet there's that double standard that, uh, you know, I mean, this guy won 12 times on the PGA Tour. They had the uh, tour in uh, driving accuracy 10 straight years, I think. Um, played on the Ryder Cup team uh, a couple of times and, and was very successful. Uh, just a heck of a player. Didn't pick up the game till he was in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. Had a self-taught swing. Never had any lessons. And at one time in the in the early 80s, could have been considered the best player in the world. Won four times uh, in the early 80s, early to mid-80s. Um, was a dominant player. Didn't hit it far, but he hit it straight. And he had the game that was forged, uh, you know, out of the out of the dirt, as they say, as as Hogan said. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, just a a great individual and a heck of a nice guy. I was working on his uh, autobiography when he died, so mm-hmm. I have great stories about him that uh, that I'd like to tell. So these are the kind of people that I would like to introduce the public to. And then going all the way back, oh my gosh, to John Shippen, uh, who by all accounts and the strictest definition of the word was this country's first professional golfer, a black man, this country's Mm -hmm. first professional golfer, Um, you know, by the strictest definition of the word. So I talk about that. I'll talk about uh, contemporary uh, subjects, you know, I'm still trying to hang on and be relevant in the game today. I know all of these young kids, uh, I call them kids because they're kids kids to me, uh, unknowns who are out there beating golf balls and playing on the Advocates Pro uh, Golf Tour um, who can flat out play. There's a young man named Willie Mack. Uh, I think he's Willie Mack II. Um, And this kid, I first met him uh, at a golf tournament in Orlando, uh, a charity tournament uh, that is run by uh, my old church when I was in Orlando, Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church, a scholarship fund, uh, raised a lot of money, and, and Willie would come up along with Shasta Avery Hart, uh, both students at Florida A&M, and Willie would come up and shoot nothing in that tournament, take all the prizes back with him. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 we didn't mind because he brought yep. uh, a certain cachet to the tournament and and it was good to see to show church members look we have some kids who are coming up who are going to be stars and Willie is a right. star in his own right he's just about mm-hmm. one stroke away from being uh, on the PGA tour and then there are others mm-hmm. who are, are striving to be um Club pros, you know. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of these kids. They they don't have aspirations of being uh, playing on the PGA Tour anymore. You know, they're kind of like me. I wanted to be a uh, an NBA player, but I was one mm-hmm. of the first and only blacks. And I won't admit this to anybody but you, Ted, 
who had no <laughs> hops at all. I was the black guy who couldn't jump. <laughs> I was the black guy who well, couldn't jump. I had plenty of quickness. I was a good player, but I just could barely grab the rim, and that was that. So that was the end of that. <laughs> that train. But so you I give said, it, you... and I wanted. <laughs> And then I want to be but a pro golfer. Right. I know. We we all had that one, too. Um, but you've given, you know you've given I mean? so much. And, oh, I know. Trust me. I know. I I wanted to battle it out with, with some of the best out in the PGA Tour when I was younger and had dreams and aspirations of that. But I knew it just wasn't going to happen. But I found another way that I could be a part of the game and, and give back and, and by teaching and, and also through uh, the, exactly. the medium that uh, I'm doing it and stuff but uh, and also you're working on uh, we only got a few minutes but you're working on uh, your own autobiography correct yes i i really got a good start before i had the surgery uh, the spine surgery and uh, i'm 18 months out from the uh, surgery and i just started back working on it again uh this is the unfiltered pete mcdaniel there no i'm not holding anything back you'll you'll be shocked <laughs> at some of the things that i did in my life I'm not too proud of, of, of um, some of them, but they shaped me into the person that I am. And, um, right. you know, and there's a lot of redeeming, uh, there's a lot of redemption that I had to kind of <laughs> go through to, um, uh-huh. you know, but, but you know, self-reflection is, is the greatest uh, tool that we have in our uh, tool bag, I believe, because well, it, it takes a, a strong person to look themselves in the mirror and admit they were screwed up. <laughs> you know, but, well, but there's a place in this world for screwed up people. Well, you know what, Pete? I, the, the the most successful people in, in whatever genre, whatever avenue in life, have all come from a place of disappointment, of, of circumstances that they, you know, as you said, screwed up and whatnot. And I challenge anybody out there listening or otherwise that if you haven't made mistakes or you think you haven't made mistakes or screwed up in your life, then you haven't lived and there's something wrong with you because we've all, we've all done that. And, and um, you know what, I I think you're right. It helps you grow as, as a, an individual and helps you become a better person. But um, um, I'm, I'm looking forward. That's going to be a great read. And I'm looking forward to you sharing uh, so many of the great stories uh, on uh, my network, uh, our Golf Sports Network, um, and again, we'll we'll finalize uh, things here before too long and, and get uh, get filming. But um, I really appreciate it, Pete. Unfortunately, we, we're out of time. And, uh, I'm going to have you come back on again sometime, maybe later in the season on this show, um, maybe when we get ready to, to launch everything else. But I want to thank you very, very much for sharing and giving of your time. And and um, I, I think we're on the same page. I think we understand. Um, really how things can, can be even better for everybody out there. And, and um, I, I hope that the golf industry really, um, you know, continues, but at a quicker pace, in my opinion, um, to open those doors for, for so many others out there that have the potential, but just maybe don't have the means. And, and I think, um, you know, some of the suggestions that you made earlier, um, I think are, are a good place to start. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, thank you, Pete. You have a great evening, and I'll I'll be in touch with you soon and uh, to talk about our other project. But uh, God bless, my friend. Thank you for for coming on and sharing uh, your 
um, your stories and, and your inspiration as well on my show. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to working with you uh, on uh, our future project. Let's do it. All right. I'm ready. Pete McDaniel, right, unfiltered. All right, if you want to get, all right. Thank you. Have a great evening. All right. That was Pete McDaniels, my, uh, my very special guest. And you can go to Pete McDaniel.com, uh, his website to get more information and learn a little bit about uh, Pete. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar, or if you didn't uh, hear all of the show tonight. And uh, if you want to uh, hear the program, if you missed it or you joined us late in the program, if you go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. And if you scroll down to the on demand section, uh, in a few moments, the recorded version will be there in the on-demand section. You can listen to the show entirely, including uh, the gang that was on earlier on uh, the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, on that note, I want to thank again uh, Pete Buchanan, John Hughes, and Brian Dobby for doing a great job on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. As always, you brought your best. And again, to my special guest, uh, Pete McDaniels, um, retired uh, golf writer and author, um, and uh, just does so many great things, and I'm looking forward to working with uh, with Mr. McDaniel's uh, in, in some future projects. On that note, thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend, and uh, I will be on uh, air next Tuesday on the Women of Golf, my other show with my good friend LPGA professional Cindy Miller next Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern, and then right back here Thursday evening again uh, on Golf Talk Live from 6 to 8 p.m. Central with uh, Coach's Corner to start up and another insightful interview guest to follow. So thank you, everybody. God bless, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts, or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.